silent killer, and for good reason. The symptoms of ovarian cancer are often benign and they masquerade as other things, so it's often let go until it becomes stage three or four before it's diagnosed, and that was the case with me. My symptoms were quite benign. I had lower backache, and so I thought, well, I'm getting older, and so I would pop Advil, and you know, and then I would feel better. But my major symptom was really severe heartburn. My heartburn was so bad that I just pretty much stopped eating, and so I didn't attribute the weight loss to anything other than heartburn. But that drove me to go to a gastroenterologist, and he did a, an upper GI scope, and he pronounced my esophagus, my upper GI tract, in good health. But he said, take some Nexium and see how that makes you feel. Well, two months later, I called him back, and I said, I do not feel any better. In fact, I feel worse. So he said, well, perhaps you have gallstones. And he gave me a script for an ultrasound for my gallbladder, and sure enough, I had gallstones. Yes, I was so happy about that because... I was feeling so sick by that time, and I thought this will be the answer to my problems. So I had surgery to remove my gallbladder, and uh, when I woke up, the gallbladder surgeon said to me, you know, while I was in there with my little camera, uh, I saw something possibly around your right ovary, but, you know, don't be alarmed. Here's a script to get a pelvic ultrasound, and, uh, you know, we'll see where that goes. So I said, okay, had the pelvic ultrasound, and that report went to my gynecologist, and two weeks later, when she came home from her vacation, she called me. You need to come in and see me. There's something going on around your right ovary. Well, because I'm very diligent about that sort of thing, I already had an appointment with her scheduled for two weeks later. So I went in. And on that day that I went in, she was already certain that this was a problem. And she had me lined up with a, a, an oncologic gynecologist and also had me lined up with the operating room at the local hospital. Do you think I was a little alarmed? <laughs> my husband and I left the office that day, our heads spinning. I also had to have some blood work done called a CA-125, which is the cancer marker for pancreatic cancer and ovarian. And so there was a three-day window when we didn't know which type of cancer we were dealing with. It was like door number one is ovarian. And door number two is pancreatic, and there was no door number three. So it was the elephant in the room that we couldn't even talk about. Neither choice was good. But the very odd thing was that when the results came back that it was ovarian cancer, I was somewhat relieved, even though the percentages <laughs> of survival were not a whole lot better. So two weeks later, into the hospital I went for my surgery, which was six hours plus long. And uh, when I awoke, I awoke to the news that it was indeed stage four ovarian cancer. And it was also of a clear cell nature, which the doctor said is often resistant to chemotherapy. And he also couldn't remove all of the cancer. Um, there was some that he just couldn't get to without doing more extensive surgery. But he removed three enlarged lymph nodes, including the baseball-sized tumor that was up pressing on my esophagus. This was mind-blowing to me because, well, for a couple of reasons. Cancer diagnosis is kind of like that anyway, but there are absolutely no female cancers in my family. All of the women on both sides of my mother's and father's family all lived to be well into their 90s, and I mean like 98, 97. Uh, my mother lived to be 94. The point is, it never, ever occurred to me that someday I wouldn't be a very old lady. This was like something that I just never even gave a thought to. And so here I was all of a sudden thinking that not only might I not be an old lady, but I might not even get to be 
a year older than I was right then. My only experience with ovarian cancer, which I knew very little about, was way back in 1989, I read Gilda Radner's book called It's Always Something. Now, if you remember, she was one of the original funny ladies of Saturday Night Live. And um, Gilda Radner died of ovarian cancer, and she wrote this book, which was very interesting. And I remember reading it. And when I read it, I closed that book, and I thought, wow, ovarian cancer, that's a killer. That's something you never want to get. So that was all I knew. And here I was with that label next to my name. One of those moments I will always remember. The doctor had told my husband I would not be awake from the anesthesia for several hours. But here I was awake when he came into the room and he very gently knelt down next to the bed. And I asked him, first question, was it cancer? Because I held out hope until the end that possibly it wasn't. And he nodded his head. And I just turned my face away to the wall and let it sink in. Everything changed in an instant. I spent about a week in the hospital recovering. Lots of friends came to visit. My husband would come. My mother would come every single day, and she would sit in the corner of my room with her knitting or a book, and she would just be there to push my lunch table up against my, you know, my bed so I could reach it, walk me with the eye pole to the bathroom, walk the halls with me. She was in her 80s at that time. I will never forget that. She came to me every single day. 9 o'clock in the morning till 5 o'clock at night. And she kept me company, company so that my husband, the builder, who I, who I will refer to, could go to work during the day, and then he would show up at 5 o'clock and, and spend the evening with me. Now, the doctor, my doctor, who was wonderful, of course, I didn't know him very well, and he would do the rounds every morning. And it was his job to deliver this information to me, and it was always scary. I, I laugh now because, and I've told him this, I used to call you the scary doctor because everything that came out of your mouth was so scary. It was his job to give me statistics and tell me about the treatments and what I would possibly face and this kind of thing. And he always, he never delivered it in a bad way. He was always positive. But to me, everything he said was scary. So I used to call him the scary doctor and I would call Mike and I'd say, Mike, you need to be here at like 630 tomorrow morning because the scary doctor's making his rounds and I need you to hold my hand. And he would always be there. Well, I had my Bible with me, and I found Proverbs twenty nine twenty five, And that says, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but those who trust in the Lord will be kept safe. So, you know, I wrote that on a napkin, and I kept it by my bed, and I read it probably 20 times a day, over and over and over and over again, until it finally dawned on me that I needn't be afraid of this doctor, this man. He could only impart to me his medical knowledge because that's what he knows. He deals in the facts and what his experience and expertise tells him, which is great. I am not saying it's not. But whether this doctor knows it or not, knows it or not, all of his giftings come from the Lord. So suddenly I was able to look at my doctor without fear. He was like my advocate and I knew that, but this was this was a spiritual matter for me. But all the burden I had put on him and he didn't even know he was carrying it around. It just fell off his shoulders. He wasn't so scary to me anymore because I could listen to what he told me. But my attention was tuned into God, and it was a huge, huge difference. I thought, okay, doctor, you can only tell me what you know. But I believe that God is a higher power. But my life is in God's hands. And from now on, that's how I'm going to look at this. And when he was giving me statistics 
and actually, honestly, to be fair, I'm not sure he gave me statistics. I might just have known them or initially looked them up or whatever. But I knew at that point that um, ovarian cancer usually reoccurs after a year and a half. And only um, 20% make it even five years. And of that 20%, it recurs in most, most people, like 80%. And so I started thinking, you know, why can't I be part of that 20% instead of the 80%? And so I started thinking that. I thought, my life is in God's hands, and I am not going to latch on to the negatives. Although there were plenty of negatives, trust me. <laughs> plenty of negatives. When I went home to recover, I had amazing care from my husband. Honestly, he was he was just so sweet. Every morning he'd carry up a tray of breakfast with a, a rose and a vase on the on the tray and and he just took such good care of me. My my children, uh, my sisters took each of them took a day off of work every single week for six weeks. And they came and they answered the phone and they just took care of me so my husband could work. Friends filled the house. I mean, every single day I had anywhere from two to ten friends stop and see me. We'd sit on the front porch in the rocking chairs and we'd laugh and talk. And it was all healing. It was all wonderful. But of course, in the back of my mind, I knew why they were there. I tried not to think about it too much. Tried not to focus on it too much. And it really helped me pass away the days. But the nights, the nights, oh my goodness, the nights were endless. They were sleepless and filled with agonizing tears. I just could not come to terms with what had happened. My life changed in a matter of just a couple of weeks. Suddenly, I was thinking, do I have a future? Do I have any kind of a future at all? What should I do? Am I going to be here for Christmas? Because this was September. Am I going to be here for Christmas? Will I be here next Christmas? What should I do? Do I give away my jewelry? Do I clean out my closets? Do I write letters to my grandkids? I was overwhelmed with grief. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me here because I was not afraid to die. I had already faced my surgery and I knew that there was a chance that I wouldn't even come out of it because I had to have a screen put in one of my veins to stop potential blood clots. And I knew that, you know, that that was a possibility. So uh, I wasn't afraid of death. My, I knew my future secure. I'll be with Jesus. There's no doubt in my mind. I wasn't grieving about my dying. I was grieving about not living. And I just wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. I love my husband, my children, my grandchildren. I wanted to see them grow up and be a part of their lives and, and just pour into them like my grandparents did and my mother, how she poured into my children. That was my grief. I couldn't imagine my husband on his own without, without me. We are, we're such a, a tight-knitted couple. We've been together since I was 17 and he was 20. And I just, it was just such a big grief. And I just wanted to live. That was the bottom line. I wanted to live. Some of my younger grandchildren wouldn't even remember me. And it just broke my heart. And the sense of loss was overwhelming. I would lie at night for hours, hours, sleepless nights and look out the window. I couldn't do anything but cry. And while my heart and my mind was turned towards God, I couldn't seem to formulate a prayer beyond the simple prayer of, Lord, help me. My support system was really wonderful. My kids kicked into gear. One made me doctor appointments for second and third opinions. One set up a website for me to be able to communicate with what was going on with our huge family and friends. And I had really three friends that I could call any time of the night if I needed to talk. And believe me, I made several phone calls at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning because I was wide awake. 
one of my friends was a, a labor and delivery nurse in a hospital, and she worked the night shift, and she always answered her phone, and we would talk. I just needed an outlet to pour out my grief. I needed someone to hear me express it. And I really didn't want to always do that with my husband because it, I didn't want to make him feel bad. I was into protect mode. This was a trying and an emotional time. And I'll tell you in the next episode how I overcame some of those barriers. Right now, what I want you to understand is if you're going through cancer, if you have had that diagnosis, I really get it. I get the grief, the pain, the anguish, the turmoil, the doubt, the confusion. But you know, I also get the hope. I had to find my way through that on that dark path. And I did emerge into a place of hope. And I'm going to tell you about that because that is really, really what carried me forth. I know all about watching television and being happy one minute and the next second bursting into tears over a commercial because it represents something that you may never get to do. I know all about holding my husband's hand in the car and looking at our entwined hands and thinking, hmm, someday he could be holding somebody else's hand in this car. I know about the dark and painful thoughts, but I also know that hope was resurrected in that dark and painful time. Hope rose up in me because I am naturally actually a person of hope. And even in this time of great despair and darkness and overwhelming pain, I saw the glimmer of hope. And that's what I want to pass on to you. That's what I want to help you with. I truly do. Because without hope, as I have said before, we have nothing. And you might seem like you have nothing to look forward to right now, but you do. Every day is a new day. God gives us new mercies every single morning. We have to find them. So come listen tomorrow, and I'll tell you a little bit more about finding those mercies. 